Hello and welcome to another episode of Jackman Radio. I am your host, Mike Jackman, and I'm very excited today. I am joined by a legend in the JFK assassination research community, uh, Mr. Vince Palomera. Vince, how are you today? Oh, great, Mike. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on. I really appreciate it, and thanks to all your viewers, listeners. Much appreciated. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and um, you know, I was doing a little reading, a little background reading kind of in, into your, you know, uh, work in the field, and it seems like you've kind of been at this for, is it safe to say, 30-plus years, 35 years? Oh, yeah. more. Yeah, about a good 35 years. Yeah, it, seriously. Now, reveal my age, I'm 56, going to be 57 this summer, and uh yeah, I started when I was 12 years old, 1978, during the Hot Select Committee, which was the second investigation of the assassination. But I didn't get real serious about it until 1988, 10 years later. So I would have been 22 during the 25th anniversary. It really, it was like dribs and drabs at that point. But boy, when the 25th anniversary rolled around, I really got serious about this. And then leading up to the present time, maybe just a real quick synopsis in between. Yeah, just my parents who are still doing great. Um, they're big Kennedy fans. And they um, just instilled the bug in me. I just, I grew into it. It's almost like it's in my DNA about President Kennedy's life and his untimely death. And uh, yeah, so what happened was um, just, I became fascinated with not only John F. Kennedy and his tragic death, but I also started to look at the Secret Service. It became sort of my pet area. Just by default, there was precious little written about them. And I just started, anytime I saw newsreels of John F. Kennedy and whatnot, I'd always look past him and look at the men surrounding him. I was just fascinated. It was also because I was interested in the, um, there's a classic television show, The Wild Wild West, which is a 19th century, you know, fictional take on the Secret Service. Well, that was my favorite, still was my favorite show. So the two interests kind of morphed together. And uh, lo and behold, I started to contact all the former agents I could find. And this is before really the internet kicked in. So a lot of this was old-fashioned newspaper archives, obituaries, directory assistants, a lot of guesswork, a lot of luck here and there. Uh, a lot of them were in the Virginia, Maryland area and also retiring down in Florida. A lot of since passed away. So that led me to, uh, I can say, just basically just going through the books. First book, um, let's see here. Yeah, the screen's a little because of the background, but that's Survivor's Guilt? That is Survivor's Guilt. Yeah, the Secret Service and the Failure to Protect President Kennedy. And you talked to over 70 agents and White House staff and members of the government for that? Yes. Yes, that was all basically um, started really in the very early 90s. And I remember Penn Jones, the late Penn Jones researcher was always, um, his thing was to say, you know, research the hell out of one area of the case. And Dr. Cyril Wecht is also from the Pittsburgh area. And he inspired me, he actually called me one time in early 1991. And he said, yeah, you should do something about this, Vince, because he heard the buzz. I was at a conference in Fredonia, New York uh, for the, uh, Jerry Rose had a print journal at the time called the third decade, later became the fourth decade. And my presentation went over very well in the Secret Service. And at that point, it was all secondary sources. I had done no primary research at all, but I could just tell from the reaction in the room, a lot of seasoned veterans, George Michael Evica, Harry Livingstone, Robert Cutler, et cetera, et cetera, that I was really on to something. And he kind of provided even more inspiration as you should try to contact these men and lo and behold, I did. I went crazy. I tried to find everybody I could who was still alive. It was just a passion, an obsession with mine for, I guess, up to that point, I guess from 1991 up to like 2007 or so. And I guess the first book came out in 2013, Survivor's Guilt. And the basic thrust of it is it's through research, 
primary research, primary interviews, I found a lot of things that went against official history. Uh, one of the things that supposedly President Kennedy ordered the agents off the back of the car, found out that's not true, that he did not order the bubble top off. Sam Kennedy, the driver of the fall car, drive, drove on many trips, including obviously the... Uh, I don't mean to interrupt, Vince, but I did want to ask you about the bubble because I yeah. people have said that to me and I've, I've been like, well, you know what? Even if you had the bubble, it wasn't bulletproof. Is that true? Well, I mean, that's true as far as the hard answer of yes and no is a bulletproof no. However, big caveats, plural, is the fact that uh, many of the agents I spoke to said it was a deterrent. There's a reason why it was on the car. It would deflect the bullet. It would obscure an assassin's view via the sun's glare and or the metal strips on it. And just the fact that anything would have deflected a bullet, anything would have been good. Now, the second deterrent about it is the fact that it was a psychological deterrent, meaning 99% of the public was under the mistaken impression that it was bulletproof. Right. So when a prospective assassin or assassins even tried with it on, because at the very least they're probably thinking, boy, I can't get a clear shot. It's kind of like you can see the reflections and the sunlight off it. And then just the fact mm -hmm. that the average person on the street thought it was bulletproof, would an assassin or assassins even try with it on? And I found that it just took many years of research uh, going through all the um, – it's, I tell people it's only been the last like 10 to 15 years. A lot of uh, films and foes have been uh, digitized and released for that matter. And it turns out President Kennedy used the bubble top on roughly one third to one half of all his motorcades, often in very nice weather. There's this myth going around that President Kennedy, you know, he had a rendezvous of death, his favorite poem. Uh, Hello, we all have a rendezvous of death. And his other thing was, oh, he was lax with security. He didn't want the agents on the back of the car. He didn't want the bubble top. He didn't want the motorcycles beside him. All bunk, pure bunk. And you can see him smiling, the sun shining. I mean, one time they went, they were in Puerto Rico with the bubble top on. It was 50, you know, going 50 miles an hour. It was 80 degrees out. Bob Lilly, one of the agents, was hanging on the back of the car he interviewed. And he poo-pooed the whole idea of the President Kennedy didn't want the bubble top on. There's just these certain myths that have occurred after his death. And one thing is, you know, they talk about his personal life. He was reckless there. And the other thing they always try to imply implicitly or maybe even explicitly is that, oh, you know, President Kennedy, he was reckless of his security, too. And it's all right. crap. And it's all through interviewing these gentlemen and comparing films and photos and documents and old newspaper articles about prospective trips he was on, Milwaukee, Paris, et cetera, et cetera, that I found, wow. I mean, I always tell people there would be no book, actually, if it turned out, if I ever say, Vince, what's your one big moment in research? You know, what really turned things around for you? Because from 1988 up to early 1992, my work was primarily secondary sources. I just gobbled on every book I could think on the case, everything secondary, but precious little in the way of primary research. Well, I finally got a hold of Gerald Bain, B-E-H-N. He was the head of the White House detail for Kennedy. He was in the secret service from FDR to LBJ. And I asked him point blank, I said, yeah, I understand from reading William Manchester's book on Jim Bishop and the Warren Report that President Kennedy had ordered, you know, the agents off the back of the car. And he cut me off. He said, I don't remember Kennedy ever saying anything about not having agents on the back of the car. If you look at the newsreels, you'll see agents on there. I was flabbergasted. And I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. Luckily for history, he allowed me to record him, and he's one of several agents that I was able to do that. He passed away the next year, and he's the head of the White House detail. So he has wow. much more clout than Clint Hill and Gerald Blaine, not to be confused with Bain, Blaine, who wrote the Kennedy detail. All these buck privates years later try to throw the blame back on Kennedy. Yet Gerald Bain, Floyd Boring, his number one assistant, Art Godfrey, a number one shift leader. I mean, the list goes on and on. So it's like they were reading cue cards, Mike. It's from all over you know, different yeah. parts of the country. 
And they were all saying the same thing, that President Kennedy was a nice man, never interfered with us. That's baloney. No, he never ordered us off the back of the car. Now, I left go the $64 million question wall. If he didn't order you guys off in you know, the car and so on and so forth, why did some of you guys blame him for it? I didn't want to get hostile with him. So I kept an open mind and just collected the information without a spin on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was the first book. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a great way to be when you're doing research because obviously we have our opinions and feelings on big events like this. But um, when you're going into primary sources and talking to people who were actually there or, um, you know, they may have been a witness in a different way because they were a witness to protocol or they were a witness to um, a firsthand conversation that happened. Um, another area with, with the Secret Service and with the protection, uh, you know, when I talk to people about this, they're like, well, you know, Mike, that was 60 years ago, man. Things were so much different back then. Things were more lax. And, and it's like, I would say through your research, uh, you show that, well, trips before Dallas that Kennedy took, security was way more beefed up and a lot different. So there were protocols and they either ignored or they just didn't follow those protocols for some reason on that day on, on November the 22nd. Right. And that's exactly what it is. Yeah. If you go by, you know, post 9-11, 21st century security, sure, it doesn't stack up. However, at the time, I include FDR, Truman, Eisenhower and Kennedy <clears throat> during that time, you know, it's before terrorism. The average threat you're worried about is a pistol, a rifle, maybe a Thompson submachine gun. But even then, I think that back then the feeling was that assassin would never do something that blatantly violent, for lack of a better way of putting it. The threat assessments were usually for the lone wolves, the lone nuts, or a small organization of people. Like two men tried to assassinate Harry Truman. That's a conspiracy. You know, even though John Wilkes Booth was the only shooter during Lincoln, there was a gaggle of people that were hung. So that was a conspiracy. But more, more to the point, yes, just judging by 40s, 50s, and 60s protocol, nothing out of the fact, not looking through rose-colored glasses, how presidents survived back in those days was building rooftops, multi-story building rooftops were guarded. That's the big, that's one of the big enchiladas of all my research. If you'd say like Vince, the top three to five things you find, that's one of them. Because I was one of the people that, you know, I thought that, oh, that was only in response to assassination. You start to, you know, guard building rooftops. Or maybe it was only for the inaugurations or one inaugural praise. no. This is from dredging, cost money, but dredging old newspaper archives, interviewing these gentlemen, finding Secret Service-related books before the assassination, including um, this, the United States Secret Service by Walter Bowen and Harry Neal. Harry Neal was a former Secret Service agent, and it was written with the help of Michael Trina. We say, well, who's Michael Trina? He was the chief inspector of the Secret Service who wrote the White House manual, the Secret Service manual. He says in the book, matter of factly, three years before Kennedy died, he says, whenever a president's in a parade, all multi-story buildings are guarded by either police or agents. And not only that, there's another book, uh, two years before the assassination, said the same thing. Newspaper articles, I couldn't believe in my own eyes, from Kennedy's trips to Milwaukee, Paris, Nashville, Pittsburgh, on and on. They say, like, the local uh, police, the police chief's going to get together. And whenever the presidential party passes... The, the the men will take their places and only, you know, I'm paraphrasing now, basically let down their guard as the president passes safely past their building. So it's like amazing. This stuff has never been published before. It's in my books. It's on my blogs. It's in my YouTube videos. It was because a little old me out of wilderness discovered this stuff because I had a, you know, obsession to find out the truth. And, and I, again, I was like most people. I would have thought that was only in response to the assassination that 
something like that happen. And no, it was it, they were doing that since the FDR days. And again, I just couldn't believe my eyes when I was reading this stuff. You know, FDR, you know, the buildings were all guarded as he passed. And again, up to you know, we just stick with Kennedy, and it, that was a common thing beforehand. In fact, four days before Dallas, <clears throat> when Kennedy went to uh, Tampa, Florida. All multi-story buildings were guarded. That was a 28-mile-long motorcade, almost three times as long as Dallas. Yet they were able to guard multi-story building rooftops. That's in a Secret Service document that only came out in the late 1990s, thanks to the Assassination Records Review Board. It was the final survey reports, official Secret Service documents in there. But more importantly, to accent that, I spoke to the lead motorcycle agent in Tampa, Russell Groover. He was the head of all the motorcycle detail that was for the motorcade. He rode close to the uh, presidential limousine. And he told me several times in writing, oh, yes, Vince, all multi-story buildings on that 28-mile-long motorcade were guarded with sheriffs armed to the teeth. And if any untoward activity would have happened, there would be some dead people along the route. And he was real matter-of-fact about it. In fact, I then I posed, oh, wait, he did say about ranch uh, buildings, only one-story buildings. He said how they took care of those was – the speed of the procession or the police and military facing the crowds and facing those buildings. So that's how they did it. So when people go, oh, Vince, there's no way they could guard all the buildings. Come on. They didn't. They only guarded the multi-story buildings. Anything that was like a ranch dwelling could be handled by police and or military watching from the street. And they also had a lot of, this was a common <clears throat> security measure. They'd have a lot of undercover police dressed in this regular civilian clothes in the the crowds themselves. In fact, I was famous. Um, there's articles from when Kennedy went to Germany. Thousands of undercover police officers were along the route. Agents were in the back of the car. They had helicopters along the route. So that's another thing. Too. Helicopters were frequently used. In fact, the day before, when Kennedy went to San Antonio, <clears throat> a police helicopter was filming the motorcade. And part of that footage came out in 2013 on a National Geographic documentary. Almost fell over. It's like, what the heck is this? It's the San Antonio motorcade and it's color film and they're down there filming. And um, mm. yeah, so that's, that's the other thing. So, and the agents weren't always in the back of the car. A lot of times they were on the car or near the car, but Kennedy had nothing to do with that. That was a secret service decision. And now they made up for not having agents on the back of the car at certain times the parade would be the speed of the cars. So everything kind of like overlapped. There was ways around. They would have a lot of motorcycles bracketing the car they had the bu bubble top on either partial or full. That's what they would explain briefly is that um, the bubble top wasn't always on in a full compartment. What it was, it came in six pieces, and sometimes only the front and rear pieces were on, and the middle piece was open so that Kennedy could get air and intermittently stand and wave and whatnot. So you had that configuration. So, yeah. So so, so was uh, on the 18th, was, was Chief Curry part of the advance team that went and drove the route with one of the agents or one of the Secret Service heads? Yes, uh, you know, death, yeah, at the same time the Tampa trip was going on. Yeah, uh, basically <laughs> around, you know, 18th, actually a little bit before that, it was uh, Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry working with Secret Service agents Winston Lawson, uh, Forrest Sorrells, ahead of the Dallas office, and David Grant, who was the assistant lead agent. Uh, Winston Lawson was the lead advance agent. And basically they kept Curry in the dark. It was a famous story, it turns out it's true, that the rot was only gone over up to Dealey Plaza, and they basically gave the inference it was going to go straight down Main Street, maybe even Main to Industrial, <clears throat> which Sam Kenny, the driver of the fall car, told me was the main alternate route 
It turns out originally that was going to be the rot straight down Main Street. They would have been further away from the book depository. The Noel right. would have at a faster rate of speed. And there's only one source out there, one sole source out there. In the Hot Committee days, um, Chief Assistant Chief George Lumpkin said, oh, they never would have took Kennedy down there. It was full of, quote, winos and broken pavement. Yet Kennedy traveled in a motorcade during, you know, through the slums of Costa Rica in 1963. He went through Harlem, a very bad area of New York, in 1962. Wherever the president goes, the people will go and the Secret Service will act accordingly. They would have been going at a higher rate of speed. There, in, in, even in Paul Lannis's report, uh, talking about the motorcade ride that day, he talks about how they went through junkyards, auto part dealers, and these typical kind of urban neighborhoods. So it was his way of saying it wasn't exactly fancy of every area of the motorcade. Of course, Main Street's going to be because as Governor Connolly said <clears throat> that was the traditional um, motorcade route was th you know through Main Street, whether they turned or not is another story. In fact, when FDR visited Dallas in 1936, he went through Dealey Plaza and Main Street, albeit the other direction. And oh, fact, really? Yeah, he went the other direction. Wow. He never went through Elm and Houston and all that jazz. He went the opposite direction, 1936. And Four Sorrels was a much younger agent. He was part of the detail in Dallas. And before we can catch our breath, this is amazing. It only came out in the last, like, seven years or so. <clears throat> it turns out that not only did President Kennedy and Vice President Lyndon Johnson only ride in one motorcade together, it was the fateful Dallas motorcade, which is a security brief to have them together so close. Well, there was one other time they rode in a motorcade. They weren't president and vice president yet. They were the senators. It was in Dallas, Texas, and also Fort Worth in 1960. September of 1960 as candidates, they rode through Dealey Plaza, albeit the opposite way like FDR did. They never went Houston to Elm, that dog leg turn back to the book deposit of the Knoll. They went the opposite way like FDR straight down Main Street. And again, Governor Connolly, during his Warren Christian testimony, talked about how Main Street was the main parade route they always used. Mm. And, and again, we'll fast forward three years later. And again, this is Sam Kinney told me this, Abraham Bolden, other agents are on record. This is the first time that those two gentlemen were ever in a motorcade. It's a tremendous security breach to put a mile together. To this day, you don't have the vice president and president together for security reasons. No, no. And yet they were put together in open vehicles to make that dog leg turn. They should have been straight down Main Street. And again, they should have had many more motorcycles surrounding the car. And they did in the prior Texas stops of San Antonio, Houston, and Fort Worth. But the 11th hour, the motorcycles were changed by the Secret Service. They were supposed to be like three to six on each side. It was whittled down to four. And to add insult to injury, they're placed behind the rear wheels, making them meaningless. And the story goes, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Blame the victim. The President Kennedy didn't like all that noise beside him. That's why they had the motorcycles beside the car. They had them by the rear wheels out of his way. Yet again, not only did he not mind on those prior Texas stops, he didn't mind on countless other stops. There's, you should see my YouTube channel. I have hours and hours of motorcade footage, and you can see the motorcycle is a good number all around his car, right beside him. And here's the thing. When Winston Lawson was grilled under oath of all people, Alan Dulles, former CIA agent and part of, you know, CIA uh, chief and part of the Warren Commission, he said, well, in this specific instance, did President Kennedy not want the motorcycles beside the car? And he was forced to admit, not in this specific instance, no. And it's it's hung in the air like wow. But then he quickly caught himself. And says, 
what was my understanding? He didn't like the noise beside him and whatnot, but he had nothing to go on that. He was just, it was like this inference. Right. Higher yeah. stops was okay. And all, you know, trips in 61, 62, 63. And again, a lot of this information only came out through not only the interviews, dredging archives that weren't cheap, uh, films and photos. And again, I can't stress this enough. A lot of these films and photos have only, I'm not trying to be melodramatic here, it's God's honest truth. A lot of these films and photos have only become available in the last five to 15 years, we'll say. And it's all because of people had to pass away, like Cecil Stoughton, the White House photographer, and Robert Knudsen, and get permission. And things became public domain. Things became digitized. In fact, if you were on the internet in the late 90s, early millennium, there was next to nothing as far as it's like an old saying. Keith Moon says they remember your entrances and your exits and everything else in the middle doesn't mean a damn thing. And so <laughs> all it was was the inaugural parade in Dallas, and there was next to nothing. And now there's just like a treasure trove, and lo and behold, it's like wow, you know. Now when now when did the Secret Service destroy a lot of that information? Because isn't that part of the story too that the Secret Service just specifically destroyed a lot of information pertaining to. The Kennedy assassination, was this during 77, 78, during the, the um, House Select Committee, or was this later in the 90s during AARB? Well, let's put it this way. We strongly suspect some things were destroyed in the late 70s. James Master Vito was a former uh, JFK agent who became uh, part of the intelligence division of the Secret Service in the 70s, late 70s, and was in charge of the Secret Service file, okay? And so... Let's put it this way. We have suspicions, but to get to hard evidence of to answer your question directly, was evidence destroyed? Yes. And that was in January of 1995. The Assassination Records Review Board, this federal board put together by George H.W. Bush in the closing days of his administration and basically ratified and put through in a big way by President Clinton, was this federal board charged with unclassifying, and declassifying millions of documents that were hidden and probably could be hidden for everyone's natural life and then some. Well, when the Secret Service was asked to produce, get this now, Secret Service survey reports for Kennedy's trips in the fall of 63, basically from September to November, they destroyed almost all of them. And they did this out of the fact it's a federal offense. In fact, the Assassin's Creed Review Board people were livid, and they were really seriously thinking about having congressional hearings in federal charges, but they didn't want to. They copped out the last moment. They didn't want to have bad blood. They didn't want to be having a cooperative federal agency for the rest of their tenure. So they took the wimpy way out and just noted it in their report. But the, the uh, Doug Horn, who was part of the ARB, and other people in, in drafts and whatnot, in memos and letters back and forth with the then current chief of the Secret Service, they were livid. But to answer your question, it's a sad destruction of history because only a precious few survived the shredder. One of them is this Tampa thing. It's worse as weight in gold. I'm thinking to myself, if you're going to destroy them, you might as well have destroyed the Tampa one because it's worth its weight in gold. You can see many motorcycles surrounding the car, you know, in, in the ages that were on the back of the car. But more importantly, it says right there in the report that all multi-story multi buildings were to be guarded by the sheriff's department as the presidential party passes. It's right there in black and white. I can't yeah. believe the mistake that they missed that one, or maybe they just couldn't destroy it. It was discovered that little one was slipped out and everything else has just been by interviews. Thank God I did what I did because a lot of these guys have passed away. Thank God I got a writing oh, yeah. several of them on audio tape because let's put it this way. You know, how skeptical people are Mike, even though, you know, Vince Palmer is claiming that this agent said such and such, There'd be people saying, how do we know? He really said, Vince is just making that up. You know how people are. 
So mm-hmm. thank God I got them on audio tape and again in writing. Thank God a lot of these uh, what did survive the shredder has come out in the newspaper articles, contemporary newspaper articles right there. It's right there in black and white. He's visiting Nashville and Paris and you, you name it. it. It's talking matter of factly about how the, the buildings are being guarded. Now that's, that's a way of letting people know. Yeah. When you see pictures of Kennedy in parades, I'd say like eh, 60 to 75% looks really good security to the naked eye. And other ones look like, Hmm, so maybe a little bit better Dallas, but it's not that radically, you know, different. Explain yourself, Vince. Well, how I explain myself is again, multi-story building rooftops are guarded. You had military or police lying in the streets facing the crowds. You had thousands of undercover police. They didn't want to look like a police state, especially back in those days of you know, before terrorism and whatnot. Now it's you could never have that again. You could never have open cars, everything, you know, you, oh. can't, you can't do that. I mean, the president now is going 80 miles an hour in a tank. And they still, you know, do what they do now because it's, it's a flash. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, this is just amazing. It, it really was unbelievable because if I didn't contact these men, I probably never would have been a book, let alone five books. Probably would have been the end of it. In fact, in fact if Gerald Bain, we can reset the clock back to September 27th, 1992. And Gerald Bain would have said, oh, yeah, President Kennedy, he orders on the car numerous occasions. And a lot of the other ones would have said the same thing. Bye bye book, bye bye research. If they would have said, "Oh yeah, he ordered the bubble top off," if he didn't want those pesky motorcycles by the car, if I didn't find out about the buildings, another major discovery of mine. Most people would think this is this probably top three would be well, Vince. You know, the president's the commander in chief; he's the leader of the free world. These are just little secret service agents. The president could tell them what to do. Turns out he cannot. Now, I did Presidents Truman, Johnson, and Clinton have all been on record saying the Secret Service is the only boss the President of the United States has. Mm-hmm. More importantly, in books and documents written before the assassination, it's spelled right out there in black and white. In fact, I just put on my uh, main blog yet another um, 1962 vintage. It has a picture of Chief Riley, and it talks about basically the Secret Service is the only people that can boss the President around. It's by law, and by law, the President must obey. So this myth that president ordered them to do this, that, and the other is not true. Even if he wanted to, he could not. And this is this is amazing. Clint Hill, even though he wrote these books, several books, we'll get to this in a second, but he wrote these books basically passing the blame onto Kennedy. Mm. In 2010, he gave an amazing Sixth Floor Museum oral history on video. I could not believe my ears and eyes. I saved a little clip of this. He's basically asked about President Kennedy, what he was like. He says, well, he can tell you certain things, but that doesn't mean you have to do it. And what we always used to do was listen to the president and do what we felt was best anyway. I guess they put that in there with an eye toward history. He just couldn't lie through his teeth about everything else. And he had to put that out. He had to put that out there, the truth. And I was like, please confirm my research. Here's video. It's not just he put this in writing or somebody can say, oh, the reporter made a mistake, Vince. no. This is him on video. It's crystal clear. And he's basically saying, even if he said something, we would do what we felt was best anyway, which is on Main Street, four brief times, Clint Hill rode on the back of the car, four brief times. So I think it's against President Kennedy's orders. I'm being facetious and sarcastic here. That's what it is. And so I guess to to sum it up in a big way is that, again, conspiracy, no conspiracy, Oswald or no Oswald. There's a contingent of people thanks to some of these later day books by Gerald Blaine and Clint Hill, they think, well, it's a shame what happened. But, you know, President Kennedy, I hate to say it, almost kind of had it coming. You know, he had a rendezvous with death. He didn't want this done, this done, this done. It's not true. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's, all, that's all BS. And uh, 
But that, that's funny though. You bring that up about um, them having to listen to the Secret Service because I love. I did read Clint Hill's book, Four Presidents or Five Presidents that he wrote. Yeah, that one. Yeah, with Lisa McLovin. Well, and, um, one, yeah. And he has that story of LBJ just getting in a car and hossing around his property in Texas, and it totally pissed them off. So right. that shows you that, like, normally they, the president would listen to those guys and not do something like that. But Lyndon Johnson, you know, I don't know if he had a drink or whatever he was doing. He's just driving himself around in this car, having a joyride right. by himself. And if their hair is on fire because it's a complete security lapse. And uh, exactly. They did. They had to work around it. They, you know, they did what they did. They had to work around it. But the thing is, um, you know, I'll make a story very brief. It's very important. Uh, back in the summer of 2005, an agent who, common story, they're all most, almost all passed away now. But Lynn Meredith was part of the Kennedy's White House detail. He was part of the children's detail, John, John, and Caroline. And out of nowhere, he shocked me. He sent a letter to Vince because we were corresponding back and forth. He goes, Vince, you know what would really help you? Because I was on the children's detail. Clint Hill. Now, he has an unlisted address and phone number. I'm going to give it to you, and I trust that you'll be respectful. And I almost like lost, like, oh, my God, it's like the Holy Grail. Other than Clint, or other than um, uh, Mike Wallace in 60 Minutes in 1975, no one had ever contacted this guy. You know, no no researcher. He had an unlisted, unlisted number and address and everything. So wow. I was bold. I was bold. I did something very bold. I sent him a 22-page Cliff Notes version of my research registered mail he had a signed receipt for it and everything and basically what it was was 20 this is before my first book even came out it basically laid out sir so many of your colleagues told me the president kennedy never wore you guys off the car what do you think about that and sam kennedy said he's solely responsible for the bubble top and kennedy had nothing to do with it and the motorcycles the buildings being guarded etc so i went through everything he was livid when i called him he said I have no interest in talking to you. And he hung up. Now you might say, well, that's a nice little story, Vince. Where is this going other than his, he was mad at your letter. Well, this is where it's going. Clint Hill was best friends with Gerald Blaine, future author of the Kennedy detail. I'm getting to this. Well, I was also talking to Gerald Blaine, 2005 and out of nowhere, Gerald Blaine shocked me because don't pee too hard on Clint Hill and Emory Roberts and some of my fellows, you know, they did the best they could. And I'm like, what the hell? Then he started to quote from part of my letter that was only for Clint Hill's eyes only. I'm like, wait a minute. Mm. And then in a note, I don't know, he goes, oh, yeah, I've known Clint since 1958 when we were at the Denver field office together. Yeah, I just saw, I went to, uh, his son just got married and we were all together like old pals. Going, like, Oh, my God. And then in the trade papers, just a couple months later, Gerald Blaine, this unknown agent, only someone like me would know who he was. He was only in the Secret Service for five years. He was on the Texas trip, but not in Dallas. He's coming out with his book on Simon and Schuster, the number one book company in arguably in the world. Like, how did this unknown agent land that? Well, his lawyer sent me a threatening letter about my blogs. Keep in mind, my first book was not yet. And when somebody you know gets the book and reads it, they say to himself, and I've reviewed his book many times over uh, Gerald Blaine's book, that he keeps inferring over and over again in the book. It's almost like an obsession, like he has Tourette's. keeps blaming Kennedy. You know, we would have done this, but President Kennedy didn't want us in the back of the car. And there was a meeting about this. He makes up this fictional meeting and says that, uh, you know, uh, conveniently, they're all dead in the meeting, and, he, and only Gerald Blaine's still alive. He says, yeah, the, the morning of the funeral for President Kennedy, we all got together and said, look, guys, we can't let it look like President Kennedy had it coming in, in orders to do things, even though, he, you know, he also says in parentheses, so to speak, it's true. Well, it turns out one of the agents, Talmadge Bailey, as part of the White House deal I interviewed, 
I'll keep this clean. He said, that's a bunch of horse beep that there would never have been a meeting like that. And I said to myself, that's, that can't be, that, that's not true because the agents I did speak to that now were conveniently dead were supposedly attending this meeting. They told me something totally different in letters, on audio tape, and, you know, just talking to them over the phone. And they all told me they polar opposite because, again, it leaves the onus on the Secret Service. So Gerald Blaine came out of this book. He even admitted he started writing in 2005, the year I contacted him and Clint. Clint wow. Hill got on C-SPAN and admitted he destroyed all his notes in 2005. He burned all his notes in 2005, and his rationale to Brian Lamb of C-SPAN was, I told myself I would never write a book. I was never going to be part of any of this cottage industry. So what I did is I took all my notes and I burned them. And Brian Lamb says, what year was this, Clint? He goes, hmm, I'll have to think. Probably 2005. They go, okay, the assassination happened in 1963. He reached till 2005. The summer I contacted him and he wow. freaked out. And again, Gerald Blaine starts writing his book. They're thick as thieves. They're on the book tours. They both do the documentary together. I have his... Um, Attorney uh, sent me a threatening letter and wait to hear you this. Struck a nerve. You struck uh, a nerve, dude. Struck a big nerve with this one. You haven't heard the last one. Wait to hear this. I'll keep this brief. Uh, I'll keep names out for legal reasons. I've wrote about this many times online. But um, a gentleman, a friend of Gerald Blaine, who was in military intelligence and also in Congress, who also worked for the post office, he was retired, started writing me out of the blue and telling me that I was a no good, non-patriotic son of a gun. How dare you, blah, 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 say what you're doing. And all of a sudden, my Amazon reviews were going down. My blogs were going down. My YouTube channel, I had a hard time getting it back. Everything was either going away or I was having a tough time getting it back. I was like, it was hacked in, in time with him, you know, making these threats. He threatened me at work twice. Two times I had the human resources department call me my old job. Uh, that was back Nine, eight, ten, nine, ten years ago. I have a new job since that time. But back then, I got weird calls from human resources. Vince, is there a private room you could speak? Because I really don't want to talk on the phone. I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? I'm thinking, oh my God, what did I do? Did I do something really bad. I can't think I did anything bad. Is it you safe to talk now? No one else is around? Yeah. Well, a gentleman, blah, blah, blah. I won't say his name. I immediately go, oh my God, this guy. Well, he wrote a letter to the CEO of the company, asked that you be terminated for your unpatriotic writings and whatnot. And she laughs at Vince, don't worry about it. We screen all his mail. The CEO never saw it. In fact, we told this gentleman if he ever writes again. Oh, this is, I'm sorry, this is after the second time. He did it twice. And we said that if he writes again, he'll, we'll file charges of harassment for you. That he's not allowed to bother you at work. One time, we'll barely tolerate mm -hmm. that. But another time, forget it. So when people say, oh, get a life, it's 50 or 60 years later. It's still a current event with these old men writing best-selling books, traveling the world, getting on TV, oh, playing yeah. Kennedy, and having them. Not only his lawyer sent me a threatening letter on my blog, but then you had somebody harass me not once but twice at work trying to get me terminated. And my blogs and videos are going down. Oh, but Vince, you know, he's just one of those conspiracy nuts. There's nothing to his stuff. Well, there must be. It must have tripped the nerve. Must be oh. something to this, huh? Because if I was yeah, a little right. hat dude, if I was a tinfoil hat guy, they'd be like, oh, pfft. Yeah, they would just ignore you. They wouldn't like exactly. It's like it's like another another point. Like if it was just Oswald, why can't we see his tax records? Oh, that's a huge because it would show that it would show payments coming from some government agencies that not do not want to be named. And and there's of course the fact that the CIA had a keen interest in him as far back as 1959. Yes, but it's interesting. So so Clint Hill, just two points on Clint Hill. Sure. 
so he said, I never wanted to be part of the book circuit and do that. Now it's what, three or four books later at this point? Uh, four books. Four okay. books. He's got four book. book last year. Oh, and he also married um, his co author, Lisa McCubbin, who was born in 1964 when he was head of LBJ's detail. <laughs> That's another story. But Okay. Well, but <laughs> the other point on that, he, so yeah. years ago, he, he, I read this somewhere, and I'm sure you can verify or, or debunk this. He, said differently like he said I, I i believe there was a shot from the front now he's like no it was it was oswald i always thought it was oswald oh I only, I only heard three shots i don't think there was anything else going on can you clarify that Vince? yes i will what that is well briefly yeah you're actually speaking about another agent but you're on to some i'll make it very brief for your listeners viewers uh clint hill for years has been a hero for, for the community even though it sounds like i'm bad mouthing him on the one hand he was one of the nine ages that drank the night before we'll get to that in a second but he also but he responded though and he wasn't kennedy's deep he was jackie's secret service guy he wasn't jfk's yeah right? but they were still on duty and what about the other seven agents that drank the night before you know it, paul Landis was the other fan first Lady I do want to get into that whole part of it too, Vince. But yeah, but I'm sorry, your, your other point about this other agent? Yeah, well, real quick about Clint Hill for years, because I'm going to get to the other agent you're speaking of is Paul Landis. Very good point, Mike. I'll get to that in a second. But Clint Hill, even though he drank the night before, always said the right rear of Kennedy's head was gone. And that indicates a shot from the front, because a small hole for an entrance wound, a large wound for an exit. He's been steadfast about that for decades until very recently, un unfortunately. Now he's moving into the side. I guess someone got to him and said, Clint, Clint, you know, for years you've been saying the back of the head's gone. Well, that goes against official history. And he's also said for years that the wound was in the back, not in the back of the neck. Okay, there's that. Well, the other agent you're speaking about actually is Paul Landis. is very timely. I'm talking about these other two agents, Blaine and Hill, were still alive writing these huge, massive, best-selling books on the number one book company in the world. They're touring and you know doing media tours and whatnot. Paul Landis, still alive and kicking from the Cleveland, Ohio area, he's coming out with a book in October. I just did a blog posting and a video about this. It's called The Final Witness, which is a joke because there's several <laughs> other witnesses still alive and, ki and kicking, including Clint Hill. And he's saying he's breaking his silence after 60 years. Yet he spoke to the High Select Committee. He wrote two Secret Service reports in the Warren Commission volumes. He spoke to Columbia, Ohio newspaper, et cetera, et cetera. He spoke very recently to television stations in the Ohio area. The list goes on. But what he, you know, what you were referring to was he's the agent in two initial reports said a shot came from the front. The first wrote, report he wrote was very interesting. It was November 27th, five days later. So he had five days to realize, wait, Oswald acted alone. What am I saying? He said one of the shots came from the front. Three days later, he wrote a second report and repeated the same thing, saying a shot came from the front. Well, in 1979, this is the new information. Little old me discovered this. This has never been written about in any book or no one knew about it. It was right before everybody's eyes. I guess the Hostile Committee final report is a hard book to find and because people weren't focused on the secret service, this must have been buried in the footnotes, literally. Well, the High Select Committee, when they were writing the report in February 1979, they did an outside contact report with this agent, Paul Landis. So this is, what, 16 years later, almost between 15 and 16 years later. Paul Landis confirmed the substance of his reports to the Warren Commission. So not only do you have the two reports written days later, he has 16 years, between 15 and 16 years to change his tune. He said in that report, he confirms what he wrote. And that gets interesting because in 2010, Paul Lannis is 
a paragraph in General Blaine's book. He said he spoke to Paul Lance, and Paul Lance was thinking about it. All these years later, he said he must have heard echoes off the overpass, and the shot that wasn't from the front, and he was just mistaken. So what I think is going to happen is Paul Lance is going to come out with his Ballyhooed book in October, and he's going to say, hey, people, I was mistaken. I know, I know. I said the shot came from the front. There's two reports, and try to forget what I said in 1979. It looks like only Vince knows about it. I'm kidding here, but he's going to basically say, oh, it was Oswald. They all came from the rear. The, yeah. The other thing is bad, Mike. It's really bad for him. And I detailed this all in a blog. Maybe he'll do some rewriting of his book or whatever. He came out against the single bold theory in 2016, the same year Clint Hill in the five presidents, the book you're talking about, also came out against a single bold theory. That's the keystone, the crux of whether Oswald or anybody else could have been the lone assassin from the rear. And so they never knew that Clint Hill in five presidents, a paragraph makes me laugh. He goes, yeah, I believe the Warren Commission in totally, except for one detail. I do not subscribe to the magic bullet theory. I'm like, oh, my God, Clint, do you realize what you're saying? It's the same thing Governor Connolly for years never could get through his thick skull. You can't have one of the other. You can't have your cake and eat it, too. Yeah. Well, Paul Lance is doing the same thing. And, again, I would bet money, Haas, you know, Haas money, whatever, that he's going to change his tune for history. But, again, I laid this out in a blog, and he knows who I am. He's one of a few agents I contacted, but – wouldn't speak to me. He basically, I left phone messages. He promised to get back to me. Never did. It's his prerogative. It's a free country, but he's much aware of who I am. And so, for other reasons, well, too. if you weren't if you weren't on to something, Vince, then these guys wouldn't be poo pooing you or, or denigrating you or threatening you or calling you at work or all the above. Um, right. So yeah, that, that, that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, ask away any questions you got, man. I talked a lot. So you have any questions? You oh no, no, dude, I. Thank you, man. That this is, it's it's uh, it's important because I love what you told me at the beginning about um, that uh, Penn Penn Gillette, the legendary researcher. Uh, oh, Penn Jones. No, Penn, I'm sorry, Penn Jones. Uh, yeah. I, I had Joseph McBride on, who wrote a book about JD Tippett into the Nightmare, and he oh, told yeah, me yeah, yeah. Yeah. he told me that Penn told him in the in the late seventies or early eighties, pick one area and obsess over that and be the be the expert on that. So it oh, looks like is. McBride did that with with uh, Tippett, and you've done that with the Secret Service. So it, you've done invaluable research. I mean, it's oh, it's it's, it's such it. a uh, your contributions uh, and 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 McBride's contributions. I mean, it's I it's a shame that more people. Don't read this stuff or don't don't know about it, but they're counting on that. They're counting on people watching the Jennings thing for the fortieth or the fiftieth uh, anniversary, uh, or maybe, no, that might have been the fortieth. Yeah, you were like, you like the first time fortieth, but they repeat Peter it every Jennings. year. They actually write both ways. It came out in the fortieth, but they show it every it's just, year. It's such a hatchet job. But I wanted to ask you earlier. So you were talking about how the Secret Service, or um, I, and I think the FBI was involved in, in protecting uh, the president at some point, but. They coordinate with local authorities. There is a Dallas police officer or a captain or some ranking member of the Dallas police uh, who admitted that he was on a rooftop with a rifle. Do, do you have any details on that or know what I'm talking about? Yes, Harry Weatherford. Okay, he, Weatherford, that was, was his name. When he was um, contacted by some young man, I think it was the late 60s, early 70s, he famously said, Penn Jones reported in one of his volumes, forgive my grief, that, oh, I, I kill lots of SOBs, basically, you know, because, you know, Dallas was – it was right-wing country. You know, JFK even said famously, we're heading to nut country now. As a, as a place, yeah. That was a place that he was warned by you know, Senator Fulbright and Pierre Salinger and a list of other people to not go to Dallas. In fact, Roy Kellerman, to his credit, during Warren Commission testimony, he said that he thought it was unusual they found no threats. 
I say it's the equivalent of President Obama going to Mississippi. Oh, we found no threats. No threats at all. You can come, sir. And it's was Kellerman the driver? No, Kellerman was the assistant special agent in charge who rode in the front of the passenger limo right next to Greer. Oh, that's oh, Greer. Greer was the driver. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Kellerman was in the front seat. Greer was the key to the success of the whole assassination because if he gets the gas or does evasive driving, Kennedy lives. And it's amazing about that man is because even when the shot of shots rang out, he slows the car down either by hitting the brake or at the very least taking his foot off the gas. He looks behind him. He sees they're in distress. He can see the superintendent from him. He's looking right at Kennedy. Roy Kellerman, his supervisor, tells him, get out of line, we've been hit, and grabs the radio microphone. And he's going to contact the other gentleman in the fall car behind him. Greer disobeys a direct order and common sense and looks directly back at Kennedy a second time and is staring at Kennedy and only faces forward after the fatal shot makes its mark and, and Kennedy flies backward and Jackie starts to get, only then does Greer face forward. And he denies all this to the Warren Commission, and which is amazing, probably one of my top two discoveries would be top, you know, top three, top two was I find this out only in the late nineties and it took years after to, to plummet and get more dimension to it. A secret service agent died a month before Dallas at Camp David, Thomas B. Shipman. He was one of the drivers of president Kennedy. So you hear about all these mysterious deaths after the fact, this one happened before. Didn't he have a heart attack, supposedly, or something? Yeah, at Camp David. This guy just passed an annual physical. I spoke to his family, and to this day, they don't want remuneration or nothing. They didn't want one red penny. I contacted him out of the blue, and they faded into obscurity right after I contacted them. And they basically didn't throw any wet blankets. They could have. They could have told me, oh, you're full of hot air or whatnot. He had a heart ailment. They all said they were just bewildered because he just passed his annual physical, and he was really looking forward to the Dallas trip. He had been in the Secret Service for a good, mm, at that point, 10, 12 years. And yeah, he was one of Kennedy's main drivers. It was Sam Kenny, Bill Greer, and Thomas Shipman. Well, Shipman made it known to his family. I got this from his only living daughter, his one niece, and a grandson. They all who knew who actually knew him. They all basically, obviously the other two now. They basically all said that uh, they found it very disturbing that they were told to quickly bury him so fast. He died on a I think on a Tuesday, and he was buried on a Thursday. No toxicology tests were done. It takes weeks, sometimes even months, for toxicology tests to go out. That's an old-fashioned, oh, yeah, yeah, heart attack. It, it should have been red flag. Wait, this fit and able guy just passed his annual physical, and he's supposed to drive the president. You can't have pilots or drivers dying, carrying you know celebrities, luminaries, commanders and chiefs and whatnot. So he goes to Camp David. He's the only person to ever die at Camp David as well. And he's the only one from Kennedy's detail to die. And he died October 16th. Okay. And the assassination happened November 22nd. Well, my big thing is, and this is only through little old me dredging the newspaper archives. Now, it, only because I made a big fuss about it. And two years after I discovered this in 1999, the former association of the Secret Service finally added him to the roll call. And he had the specific date he died. He just said he died of a, camp, a heart attack at Camp David. But with shipment out of the way, if people are suspicious that he died and think there's something to it, it left little old Bill Greer to drive Kennedy very ineptly. And it's interesting. Greer died in 1985. I spoke to his only child, his son Richard, in 1991. He gave me one of the shocks of my life. I talked about Gerald Bain saying that Kennedy never wore the of the car and all his colleagues agreed when I spoke to him. Well, I asked 
Richard Greer. What did your father think of Kennedy? And it went quiet as a mouse. I was like, okay. And I asked other things, and he answered them all. And I went back to serve. You know, my what, what did your father think of President Kennedy? And he paused as, well, we're Methodists. JFK was Catholic. It wasn't until years later, that was very cryptic and weird, I found out that Bill Greer, I did this in association with the Irish Times. They were working on a fascinating story about Bill Greer's background because Bill Greer came to America at 18. So he was from Ireland, born and raised in County Tyrone, Ireland. He was part of the Orange Order, him and his family. And what that was, was you see that that U2 song, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and all U2, you know, talking about yeah. how. I just watched that new documentary about them last night. Yeah, with, well, the with Letterman. The Protestants and the Catholics for, for gener not just decades, generations. It's weird that a total stranger on the phone, me, speaks to his son, asks him what his father thinks of Kennedy, says nothing. It's really, it would be weird to be like, Mike, if you asked me a question, I decided to say a word. You'd be like, Vince, is there a mic problem? You can't hear me or something? Well, okay. And I went back to it, and he gives me that cryptic, well, we're Methodists, and JFK was Catholic. Rather than lying, he said, oh, he, he loved President Kennedy, and President Kennedy loved him. So when you think about his actions and inactions on Elm Street, slowing the car down and everything, and you think about the fact that Thomas Shipman died at Camp David, these are all facts, not theories. It leads one to grave suspicion. You know you're bad when even Gerald Paz and Vince Bugliosi say – that the key to the success of assassination was Bill Greer. In fact, Gerald Posner was on CBS TV. Millions of people saw it in the fall of 1993, blaming Greer for the assassination. Now he says it's Oswald shot, but he <laughs> blames Greer. He says Greer slowed the car down and gave Oswald a perfect target. The point being is yeah. if Greer would hit the gas, there you go. It's another more secret service ineptitude. And a little postscript on the night of the assassination, he's interviewed by the FBI agents of the morgue. Guess what that son of a gun said, Greer? Now, this is after William Manchester, who interviewed a whole bunch of people, said that Greer felt remorseful at Parkland Hospital. He even said to Jack, oh, if I only saw it in time, oh, I'm so sorry. That night he told the FBI, sometimes the president told me to slow down. <laughs> that's bizarre. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, that's more victim blaming, it sounds like. And, exactly. And, um, yeah, that's, wow, that's really weird. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, some of these people who get these government posts, they they seem to have a uh, dedication to their beliefs uh, that preceded their job with the government. Like I, I read um, Greg Unger's book um, about all the Opus Dei members of Trump's cabinet, like Barr and all these other people. And, and, and it's a, it was a small clique of like Opus Dei disciples um, mm -hmm. who were involved. And, and uh, so that, that's, you know, that's one example. I mean, if, you know, if you want to cite that. Um, yeah, and this thing, but, but these guys were paid very little, very poorly paid, you know, federal law enforcement officials. And, you know, there is one kernel of truth, whatever it is, a big kernel of truth, that President Kennedy, I'm a big admirer, but he did have, big, I'm a big admirer of him, but he did have one fatal flaw, and it was womanizing. It might not have been to the extent that it's been said through the years, but he did. And these men were witness to it, and there's no doubt about this part. Four agents got on ABC. I have it on video. It's all over my YouTube channel. Four agents, including one of the ones that rode the follow-up car. <laughs> and they talk about their disgust and anger at President Kennedy's private life. Tim McIntyre rode the follow-up car right behind Clint Hill. And he said, prostitution, that's illegal. And a procurement, that's illegal too. And you have a procurer of prostitutes praying in front of you as a sworn law enforcement Officer, you kind of say to yourself, well, what are we here for? 
that Tim McIntyre thought about that and he was just X amount of feet beyond Kennedy. Wow. In triple wow. Right. Yeah. And then coupling that with Abraham Bolden's testimony in his book, you know, Echoes from yeah. Dilly Plaza. And I know you're friends with him and, and um, I, yeah. we've had, we had him on the program years ago and I'm really, really glad to see that he's still alive to get that, that complete, maybe it's not complete, but that pardon from president Biden. Oh, last year. I mean, that, awesome. Talk about the vindication and that he deserved years ago. I mean, that's not even, it's not yeah. even really a shred of justice for him, but it's at least it's something. And he really illustrated in his book and testimony that a lot of these secret service agents hated Kennedy. They, they, they openly talked, they were racist openly. Um, yep. You know, they, they, they partied and, and drank. Well, yeah. So, and they, and some of them probably hired, you know, some women of the night perhaps, but one area I really want to go into is the, the night before and the fabled or not fabled, but infamous um, story of these agents drinking and partying till like two, three, four in the morning when they had to report to their post at like, Six, seven, or eight, or something like that. Seven a.m. Um, yeah, seven a.m. Seven a.m. Seven and eight. Between seven and eight, some conflicting reports. Between seven and eight. Okay, we'll go into that. Nine agents drank the night before in the morning of. Like drank heavily. Like yes, like, all like partying, partying. Yes. This is several media people and are on I, record. Not just one guy. Several. It's quoted in my book in my first book, Survivor's Guilt. And he said that, yeah, they were heavy drinkers. They went to the Fort Worth Press Club in the cellar. Some people try to give them excuses about events, you know, the cellar nightclub. They didn't serve drinks. They actually did. They provide the cocktail. They provided the fruit chasers and in, in brown bags, whatnot. Either the men brought in their own alcohol or was given under the table, so to speak. So, because there was, you know, liquor laws and whatnot, and they had blue laws. Well, there's ways around that. Exactly. Now, but now, now, had you heard this one? Mark Rupert said this in, in, in a show. I'm sure you know who he is, or I don't know if you know him personally. Um, I've heard he said him. that at, at one of the clubs uh, that the Secret Service agents were drinking at, George Carlin was actually performing stand up. Have you ever heard that? Yes, I've heard it. Yeah, I've heard that a few times. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yes, that is a small world. Well, here's the thing. Nine agents drank the night before, including four who had critical duties on the fob car. Clint Hill, Paul Landis, Jack Reddy, the closest agent to JFK, was on the opposite side running board, and Glenn Bennett. And then the other five were, you know, they were part of the Texas trip and not in the motorcade. So, again, four critical agents. And that's what makes me angry is because in Volume 18, there's a page from the Secret Service manual. There's a long section about the Secret Service drinking duty. It's basically covered up and, you know, limited hangout. They admit to only like three scotches or a couple beers, three beers, is that and the other. But what's almost more important is how late they stayed out. There's special right. reports for duty between 7 and 8 a.m. Paul Landis didn't get back till 5 a.m. So these guys, you talk about these guys live and breathe in their reflexes. They're only getting a few hours sleep, if that, and they have to protect the president in the motorcade. Give me a break. I always joke with you. That's why they're wearing sunglasses. In fact, Paul Landis makes a weird, <laughs> yeah, he makes a weird cryptic comment in his uh, report. He joked around and asked Sam Kenny, where's the follow-up car? I'm thinking to myself, is he joking or is he telling the truth? He's so bombed. <laughs> he didn't know what the was. It's in his report. It's right there in the report. But the bottom line, here's what's crazy, Mike. You have to laugh, even though, you know. Yeah. Well, it's grounds for dismissal from the Secret Service. It's right there in the manual to, to drink while in travel status, as these men were. They weren't off duty in the traditional sense of the word. They were expected to come to duty. It would be like having a football game and your coaches are telling you, don't drink the night before. We have a big game the following morning, early afternoon, and they all get 
drunk and that you're not supposed to do that. Well, this is more important. It's life and death for the president. And yeah. you're thinking, and what makes me mad is not only were they not punished in any way whatsoever, Chief Riley was really grilled by um, uh, the, I couldn't think of his name for a second, um, Earl Warren, uh, the head of the Warren Commission, I think a Chief Justice Earl Warren, that's it. And it was probably his finest moment, Chief Justice Earl Warren, and he says, wouldn't these men have been better served if they would have been to bed early, weren't some beating in club drinking? He says, yes, but I don't think they could have prevented the assassination. That's why I didn't punish them in any way whatsoever. I don't want to stigmatize these men. Nowadays, these guys would lose their pension, may face federal and civil uh, charges, et cetera, et cetera. Clint Hill was promoted, given an award, was able to retire comfortably in 1975 at age 43. He's now a multimillionaire. He's written books that have sold hundreds of thousands of copies on the number one book company, Cha-Ching. Uh, he just turned 90 recently, too. He's yeah, still, he's still it, going strong. Is you know his wife was born 32 years after him, but whatever, teach his own his co-author, and uh, she'll inherit everything when he goes. But uh, anyway, uh, the thing is, yeah, it's what makes me so mad. Is these guys drank the night before, they failed miserably. Yet this, what it was was there was no Woodward and Bernstein back in the 60s. There was no internet. So much of this. Oh, there was Mark. There was Mark Lane who who said glowing things about you and used your research in his final book. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, God last... bless him. He was great. Yeah, the, the last word. That was awesome. See, the thing is, it, it's all timing, Mike. It's all that was wonderful, and I'm so appreciative. I love it, love it, love it. But it was so many years later. If only this would have been back in the '60s, heads would have rolled back then. If they would have invested, you know, uh, was his name Pearson? Uh, I forget his first name right now. But the guy he was a muckraking reporter, supposedly. But he's the first one to report on the drinking incident. And that's why the Secret Service was forced to investigate. They end up doing nothing, not punching these guys. Like I said, if some of them were even promoted, none of them were taken out of the Secret Service. Like I said, Clint Hill became special agent in charge of the White House detail for LBJ and became assistant director for all protective forces. Was able wow. to retire early. So it's disgusting. They weren't. Punished, they were promoted and, and given all these awards, and that's the reason why Clint Hill had guilt for years. He knew the real story. Well, he he descended into alcoholism, right, and deep depression, and and I mean, obviously serious PTSD. I mean, you, you can't take away from that. I mean, right. Um, he had guilt, but what happened? What, what assuaged his guilt, I guess, was come two thousand five, when he saw my letter and he realized I was going to tell it like it was, and he had to come out. And for the betterment of the service and their reputations and whatnot, throw the blame back on Kennedy, whether he privately was disgusted or not. Judging by his sixth oral history, he didn't agree with what he was saying and writing because he said the polar opposite in a little snippet, which is just worth its weight in gold. It's on my YouTube channel, and I've got copied many times. But the, the point being is it's been a war of ideas ever since 2010 when these guys came out of their book. And, you know, Gerald Blaine had just the one book, but he had a documentary in it. And... Paul Lance was in the documentary. Clint Hill was on the documentary. Well, then Clint Hill has written four books on his own for a total of five by Lisa McCubbin. And every one of those books has to mention President Kennedy ordered him off the car. That's the reason why, you know, this yeah, it just tells the official story. It's disgusting. And it really is. Yeah. It's a shame. And that's why. But I know one good thing. Yeah, I'm on a smaller publisher than Simon Schuster. But I tell you one thing. My books sell every week. Oh, Trine Day? Yeah, they're awesome. Bob's Amazon and the internet and Kindle because I work for a living. I'm not in this for the money. I hate that. It's nothing that makes me disgusted when people say, you know, you're in this for the money. People are the trolls. The thing that cracks me up is the people making any kind of money are the low nunners. Gerald Blaine, Clint mm -hmm. Hill, Gerald Posner, Vince Posner. Posner. 
William Manchester, yeah, he's a positive. William Manchester, Jim Bishop, all the people that spies low nuts are the ones raking in the money. And people like me and, and you and conspiracy authors. Oh, I've spent thousands of my own money, and I'm sure you have. Exactly. I broke me for the real information. It, it's it's I work for a living. This is a labor of love and truth and whatnot. And, and like I said, the one good thing, the, the, the solace I have is that, thank God, if, I, I say point blank, if my books would have came out in the 90s, they would have died on the shelves. Only like my mom and dad and I wouldn't have copies. No one would have cared. But see, because the Internet and the Amazon have made such a level playing field, people don't care if John Jones wrote this book from the Acme Publishing Company. They just search and say, Oh, there's a book by Honest Answers by Vince Palomera. We'll check that out because they're interested in subject matter. So by virtue of that, it's not a whole lot of copies, but they sell every week. As God, my first book came out in 2013. It still sells. And the other ones, I have five That's books total, and they all sell. And again, I work for a living, but it's it, so at least it's getting out to the point where, judging from my YouTube channel comments and comments I get in general. I'm fighting the good fight that there are people that are much aware of the fact that the Secret Service has put down a cover story. Clint Hill and Gerald Blaine have a lot to answer for. Not everybody's fooled. Even sometimes their Amazon reviews, people will say, oh, this is total bunk. These guys are trying to like lay the blame on Ke Kennedy who can't defend himself. So, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's total that. BS. Yep. We're, um, we're, we're hoping to have on RFK Jr. on the show soon. Um, he, Ooh, he was great. here about an hour from where I live uh, speaking in New Hampshire, and he's seriously yeah. considering running for president. And uh, he, he knows, man. I mean, it, it, he has said that it was JFK, the unspeakable, that actually inspired him to visit Dilly Plaza for the very first time. And Excellent. that's powerful. That's so powerful. So the work of, like, you know, Jim Douglas, your work, obviously Mark Lane's work. Jim you know, Eugenio. Jim, Jim Eugenio, who I, who I would love to have on this program. Oliver Stone. I mean, everybody all the way up from, a, a you know, Academy Award-winning director to someone who has to work a day job like ourselves who's doing this. I, I do believe it makes a difference. And yeah, people, you know, people are hungry for the truth, it. Vince. People are hungry for the truth. They're yeah. hungry. They, they don't want to be bullshitted and lied to and treated like children anymore. You know, yeah, we, you know we, what happened? You know, I think in you, you're much aware of this, Mike, but for your listeners and viewers and whatnot, that I got to the point I was kind of burned out on the case. I was always going to have an interest. I figured five books in eight years. I've done so much. I've done so many radio shows, Skype shows. Oh, I got to take a break for this. When you first contacted me, I was basically in semi-retirement, leaning towards retirement. But what happened was, what inter what intervened was basically the public. I I uploaded this for a heck of it, a few videos, my YouTube channel. And they instantly got like thousands of views and comments. Oh, Vince, it's so good to hear you again. Don't give up. And I was like, all right, well, if you guys want to hear, then I'm, st I'm still here. I thought people were like, I always get this thing. I've done this for years. I don't know what, I always think like, Okay, we're at the 40th. That's it. Or we're at the 50th. I guess that's it. Now we're at the same. But the level of interest is crazy. I, there's not. A, this is not hyperbole. There's not a day goes by I don't get multiple comments on my YouTube channel or emails or Facebook messages from strangers who send me message requests. The interest is there big time. It really is. It still is. I think it's because it's like the hidden secret or not so hidden secret it's the biggest crime of the 20th century. And I think it still lingers now. because Luckily we've never had an assassinated president since. And Kennedy lives in all the audio visuals. So it doesn't feel like ancient history. You know, you go on TikTok. I have a big TikTok channel of all my uh, historical stuff. And you go on there and there's lots of other channels that have Kennedy stuff, historical stuff. So it's permeating in social media in a big way and obviously YouTube. So it's not like, 
oh, this is like Lincoln or this is like Julius Caesar. This is ancient history. It's not really because, again, he's the last assassinated president. He's only 10 or 11 presidents ago. Millions of people still remember who he was and his presidency and so on and so forth. And I think it's just like one of those things that it lingers, the body politic and, and the imagination and whatnot. So and it was our royal family, you know, basically warts and all, any kind of problems they might have had here and there. John F. Kennedy was a good man, tried to do good and did some really good things. And, you know, he saved us all from World War III. If nothing else, he saved us from World War III, a Cuban Missile Crisis. If he would have chose the hawkish way of doing things, if Richard Nixon would have been president, probably wouldn't be around now because the nuclear weapons would have flew. So Yeah, and, and you know what's crazy, too? Today, March 20th, is the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War invasion. Uh, yes. And, um, yeah. We ended up with leaders like George W. Well, I use the word leader very loosely, but we ended yeah. up with a president like George W. Bush who lied, lied to us into a war. And um, I think history is finally turning on this point, whether it was NSM, the NSM uh, directive that Kennedy wanted troops out of Vietnam, but not troops, advisors yeah. that were in there. There was a, a thousand or under a thousand advisors who were there. And he said, it's, it's, their, it's not our fight. It's not our war. It's theirs. And, you know, he wanted them out of there by 1965. I think. Right. Yeah. John yeah. Newman, Jim Diogenio, and just the whole um, latest JFK, um, you know, revisited the documentary. Amazing follow up, so to speak, to the JFK movie by Oliver Stone goes all into that about, you know, JFK was definitely pulling out of Vietnam and also his um, stance on Cuba. He did not want to invade Cuba. He didn't want to get rid of Castro. Well, that really angered the military industrial complex. And yes, although I don't think they're a big factor, the mafia as well. So you had powerful forces against Kennedy. And some people try to say, well, Vince, every president has uh, powerful forces against him. Not like Kennedy did. Not to the fact that he wanted to not have a war in Vietnam, boots on the ground. He did not want to invade Castro and bring back the casinos for, you know, the CIA and the mafia and whatnot. And, and you know, he basically wanted peace. He wanted the Cold War. His, his speech at American University was a signal to everybody, shot across the bow in a big way, that he wants peace in our time. And he wants the end of a Cold War. And the military yeah, the test ban treaty, of course, too. Yeah, tech, test, exact test ban treaty, which he announced there, American University. So, again, Kennedy wasn't saying he had his flaws. We all do. We're all human. But even if you get rid of the Camelot and some of the syrupy stuff, he was a very good man. That's why historians in a landslide always put him as a well above average president. In fact, in not just you know, people polls, he's always in the top five. But in historical polls, he's always in the top 10. Like, he does really, really well of hard-nosed historians and say, in a limited time, what he did as a leader, and they talk about, again, the Test Ban Treaty and his, uh, you know, stance, the Cuban Missile Crisis and other things. People don't realize he was also responsible for manpower, the whole temp agency, that whole thing. You know, you know, he was a early stalwart for the Civil Rights Act. Yeah, LBJ passed it, but that was a Kennedy act. He well, his heart, LBJ's heart wasn't in it. That was a political yeah. expedient move on his exactly. part, of course. It was a um, Kennedy bill all the way. This didn't yeah. Pass. Well, you know, you know, Vince, they also saw, that, okay, we're, we're going to have Jack Kennedy for two terms, then we're going to have Bobby, then we're going to have Teddy. We, we cannot right. allow this to happen. Exactly. Right? I mean, that, that in my opinion, that had to have been part of their reasoning for taking this guy out. And, You're right. And, yeah, you know, RFK Jr. said, uh, this is a coup that happened that we've never recovered from. And I think that really, that sums it up. You're and right. If we, if, we don't, if we don't have a reckoning on this, even six decades later, um, our country is going to continue to slide in, into um, chaos and fascism. And, and uh, you know, um, where just official lies become the dogma and there's no questioning of it. There's no more free speech. There's no more 
um, faith in democracy. I mean, you look at the faith in government in American institutions, it's all eroded since the Kennedy assassination, that was since the, the early to mid-60s. My parents, they're in their 80s doing great, and they said that uh, they, they view it as the end of innocence. They always say something very interesting. They said 9-11 was tragic and horrible, but they made a really profound statement. They said, you know what? I've heard this from other older people, too. 9-11 was terrible, but I didn't know those people. They said the JFK assassination was more shocking than 9-11. They said because they knew really? he was the president, and we're desensitized now. Let's face it. Yeah, 9-11 was pretty hard to be you know, desensitized to, but even then, you know, it was still – I went to work the next day after, and I won't even say some of the comments, but they were like – some people had comments that were just like so distasteful and just like, wow, were you even phased by this at all? The point being, in 1963, when Kennedy was killed, he was – he did like – speaking of 63, he did like 63 or 64 – press conferences he went to everybody's homes for cable tv when everyone was watching and interested they they loved kennedy so when he was killed it just they said the 50s really ended when kennedy was killed and that was really the beginning of the 60s the counterculture and you know the you know the drugs seeping in and dis, you know, disillusionment with government and you had watergate etc 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 so that was the linchpin but again by the time we roll around 2001 as shocking as horrible as 9-11 was it's a really good point I, in fact i think it was either larry sabato or some other author did a poll and he was shocked by the results that how many people 60 and up view the kennedy assassination as much more shocking than 9-11 so the point being at all this is yes even though it's x amount of years later it still has a profound effect because again oh no he did he say it's world war three if Kennedy's not killed, there's no LBJ as president. There's no Nixon. There's no Ford. Even though he was a good man, there's no Carter because Carter was a response to the Nixon-Ford years. Then from Reagan up, it's a maybe, maybe well, not their presence. It, but the bottom line, it affected history in a major way. Vietnam. Did. They did. They politically assassinated Carter. I mean, he was so ahead of his time, and and I'm glad and I'm glad to see that he 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 did live to see history turn on on how he actually was as a man and a leader. Because best he was a president, best ex-president ever. He won the Pulitzer Prize, Good Meeting, Habitat for Humanity. He's out building oh, houses for people. He's not giving million-dollar speeches. Yes. He's, he's building houses for people. He's trying to deal with Israel and Palestine in earnest. Yeah. You yeah. Just don't, you don't see that. You just yeah, don't see that. he inherited the mess, too. The Nixon-Ford years were terrible. That's when, you know, whip inflation now, Ford had those buttons. A uh, little button's not going to do that. It was almost like things were set up to fail. And then the thing about Carter was – he could have went in there and took out some Iranians to get the hostages, but he said, "I'm not going to fire any shot in anger. I don't. I want the hostages to live." So even though that hostage crisis you know, went on and on and on, and created a psychological feeling of a malaise, you know, like oh, this is the day fifty something of the mm -hmm. hostage crisis, but they all survived. They were all lived to see another day. You know, Bush, Bush, and the other fellow there negotiated that, so it would end later to make Reagan look good. Anyway, total well, surprise. Yep. Yeah, who, who was the CIA guy that was? Um, so William um, Casey. Casey, it was Casey. Yeah. They sent Casey over there, and they met with some Iranian officials in England or something, um, and to, to delay the release of the hostages to make Reagan look better. That right. just shows you how sick the these people are. Psychopaths. Yeah, the day of his inaugural, they're coming home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, this is before the internet, before people really thought a lot of the thing. And the Kennedy thing is, is rich for that. Other than a few people's books, they didn't have, you know, people had like a book by Harold Weisberg or Mark Lair, Sylvia Marr, which is wonderful. But there wasn't more they could do because the files were all under seal. I can tell you what, all the secret things I spoke to were, a, were on duty back then. They all told me to fly a kite. 
So I've been like, Vince, how many secret service did you speak to back in the 60s, 70s, even to the early 80s? It would have been 0.0 because the guys were still active. There's no way they would have mm-hmm. talked. The reason why they right. talked then they were retired. And, hey, some young whippersnappers isn't going anywhere. And, uh, yes, that's – yeah, I was yeah he's wet behind the ears. I can tell him, uh, you know what, what you know what I think he wants to hear. But in, in reality, you're like, oh, I got this question, I got this question, um, you know. And that's the thing too about the files. We talked about the files early on when Poppy Bush was leaving office in '92. They passed that law uh, for 2017. They're all to be released. And Trump was tweeting, he's like, at long last, the Kennedy files are going to come out. They're going to be so beautiful. Then <laughs> it's going to be incredible. I mean, he loves a good conspiracy too. It's going to be incredible, Vince. Believe me, okay? I'm going to have a slice of chocolate cake with Mike Pompeo. We're going to release all the files, and it's going to be so beautiful. And Trump's getting arrested tomorrow, I hear. Do you think that's going to happen? Do you think they're going to perk walk him? I, I, here's what I think. The ratings are going to be so tremendous, Vince, okay? They're going to be so tremendous. <laughs> I don't think they're going to perp walk him, sadly. I think they're going to treat him with dignity because he's a former president, but he's definitely getting indicted and arrested. I think it'll be like a solid arrest. He'll turn himself in. But, you know, the thing is going to be bad. Oh, is this going to be bad for him? They'll, they'll, he'll get fingerprinted and he'll get released on bail. But they'll the thing is, though, Vince, this, this is on a seven-year-old misdemeanor where a lot of the statute limitations have already run out. But, New York, the but, New York office it's not doesn't have any federal teeth. So it's like – it just seems like a stage, it's a stage show. What's yeah, that? but there's the federal uh, investigation. There's the Georgia investigation. There's a couple other ones. And you got to keep in mind, Al Capone, for all the things he did, he was <laughs> – he, they got him on tax evasion. So, right, yeah. Tax. Little things that'll get him. But the point being, about back to the files, because some people might be watching and saying, hey, I don't like this anti-Trump stuff. But the thing about the files, yeah, Trump oh. and Biden have released X amount of files, but there's still a whole bunch of files that have not been released. It's still a burden. And the other thing it's a burden is, I mean, human nature being what it is, the average person out there is worried about their checkbook and feeding their kids and that. Absolutely. You're going to get a lot of the nuances of the files. It takes years to plumb. Like Jim D'Eugenio came out with a wonderful book. He updated Destiny Betrayed. He also came out with a book called uh, Reclaiming Parkland, also known as the JFK Assassination. He updated it. And he's he's going through all the files all these years later from the 90s. But it's it's like esoteric. See, so the average person on the street wants to know who killed Kennedy and was it the driver and uh, I think it was the mafia and was but single bullet theory. These things about the files in Cuba and Vietnam, I think they kind of like uh, they, 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 they people want the sexy quick answer. That's why I was told it's worth this book honest answers about the assassination in general, not the secret service, but the whole case. And I say in it, the good news is I present evidence of a conspiracy. I think we could definitely prove there was a conspiracy. The bad news. Other than some really good speculation, we can't prove who did it. So what happens to the public is I think that's what feeds this never-ending feeling of unsatisfaction. They believe there's a conspiracy, but they don't know it because there's not, you know, people haven't you know, seen my book in huge numbers, and more importantly, they haven't seen the hard evidence of conspiracy a lot. So what they do is they have a feeling there's a conspiracy, and their feeling is right, there's a conspiracy, but when they're not given the answer exactly who the shooters were and who yeah. in it. It, that's why it's it's not satisfaction. That's why stupid theories like George Hickey shooting the president from fall car by accident and Bill Greer, the driver, shooting him oh, on purpose. Yeah. It, it fills that sound bite. Or umbrella thing. man with a dart coming out of his umbrella. That that bullshit. Sorry to curse, but you're right. That's, that's what it is. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, it, it is. And that's the same thing with 9-11. That's the same thing with COVID. And unfortunately, that's what happened. That's what's happened now. Um, a researcher, I really like Ryan Dawson, says it's uh, it's uh, the kookification uh, of these yeah. these big events. Yeah, 
Sad. You know? Conspiracy theories and theories of a, are a dirty word now. And I attribute that a lot. Just my opinion is you don't have to agree with this. A lot of this has to do with Alex Jones and James Fetzer. It's what they do with 9-11 and Sandy Hook to make conspiracy theories a dirty word. Now, what's happened mm -hmm. is now the average person goes, oh, you tinfoil hat people don't think Sandy Hook happened and whatnot. Like, don't want me in with that. I don't – I believe Sandy Hook did happen. I don't believe all that wacky stuff. But what happens is it paints a broad brush, makes us look bad because Fetzer at one time was just a JFK assassination theorist and, and wrote you know books about it. But then – 9-11, he lost the plot, started to think all these goofy things, and Sandy Hook happened. It's such a tragedy for years. People thought, those kids weren't even killed. They're hiding out in their parents' basements. And yeah, it's it disgusting. What, what, yeah, that, that's – I, I agree with you, Vince, and, and it's unfortunate. And I think this QAnon nonsense has also oh, – you know, you got, you got these people gathering who, who are like, oh, JFK Jr. is still alive, and and, and, and to, to lump in people who have devoted most of their lives into this like yourself, like me – like a lot of people we know, yeah. and then you can't even talk to people who are on the fence or don't maybe don't know anything because of stuff like QAnon, because of uh, Fetzer poisoning the well, or, or you know, exactly. I mean, he's he has a whole book about, and I'm a Beatles fan, he's got a whole book about Paul is Dead, which is like, yeah, yeah it's interesting, it's fun, but it's like, really, yeah. dude? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's got the Sapruder film hoax, which... Douglas Horn has done a lot of interesting stuff about Sapruder, and there are questions about the chain of custody with the Sapruder film. But the more outlandish stuff Fetzer talks about, I think, is is uh, fantasy land. But I agree. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm willing to look at anything. But when you look at it, and you're like, yeah, this isn't, this is not. There, there's nothing here with this. Um, well, you, they, get lump, they, you get lumped in with that. Yeah, and the thing about the Sapruder film alteration, I'm not a fan of that at all because the thing is. Among other things, you have proof of a conspiracy in it. JFK flies violently backwards into the left, and right. you also have the single bullet theory shows it cannot be true. If some people were saying this is a cartoon, this is a CIA, it's like a cartoon, this isn't the real film, when it destroys evidence, then it gets to the point where what can you believe about everything? Is everything fake? Is everything doctored? I mean, some things actually, not sounding like I'm both sides of my mouth, I'm open to the idea that the x rays and photos might have been tampered with, or at the very least, they were giving a false perspective, like a doctor was holding up the back of the head of the scalp. So the photo gives a dishonest presentation. Maybe the photo itself wasn't altered per se. But the point is, I'm a little bit open to alteration of the films or the x-rays and the photos to a point, to a point. Or they were just misinterpreted dishonest. Yeah. Is, well, you got one of the photo technicians, or one, I think it was a guy at Bethesda who said, we didn't even use this film. So see, I don't that's know. See, that's where I'm like, okay, there's something to this. And, and, I, and I mentioned this to you great. off air. David Lifton's work, um, Best Evidence, goes into a lot of that. I mean, yeah. just the chain of custody and, and the fact that, to kind of paraphrase a little bit, um, the coffin that supposedly they put you know, Kennedy's body and was very ornate and very nice in Texas. The one that showed up at, uh, for the late night autopsy was basically a, a bag that they put bodies in that are killed during wartime, according yeah. to the, those who received the body at, uh, in Bethesda. Right. Yeah. And that, that's, there. What's good is, uh, David Lifton sadly passed away. I've spoke to him recently many times. Yeah. But, uh, luckily a family member has come out of the education forum and has confirmed that the final, Shrade manuscript, his final book is going to see the light of day, and it's something like it's going to see the light of day soon because okay. we waited for decades. And hey, David Lifton was like a sculptor who couldn't put away the chisel, he just could not release this thing. And now it's going to be released. If there's anything that David wished would have been perfected, oh well, we need to see this book. So, luckily, it's still going to come out. So, 
Yeah. And, and he released a very important, like, 45, 50-minute documentary supplemental uh, to his book, which is just lights out. He's got all those interviews like you did, like original on-the-ground reporting with the people who are actually yes. there. And you're like, uh, you're not going to call these people crazy and conspiracy theorists because this is the guy that wrapped the president's body right, and wrapped the head before they put it in the, in the, in the casket. Yeah. And what he's saying is it's, it's earth-shattering yeah. against the oh, official yeah. story. Paul Connor, Floyd, uh, Floyd Reby, and, you know, um, Gerald Custer, who I spoke to, and we did uh, videotaped interviews with him and Harry Livingstone and I. And, uh, yeah, this amazing uh, stuff. Really, David Lips is unbelievable. Yeah. And with the files, we, you were talking about that. You mentioned that earlier. There, it, it is esoteric. There is a lot of nuance. But I think one of the most – one of the more important things that, that has been released since – and to Trump's credit, that Trump – and Pomp and Pompeo, I'm not a Pompeo fan, but he made the point. Well, we did release thousands of files, and one of the nuggets that was dug up in that release was the fact that um, uh, Cavill was was a CIA asset since the late '50s. Yes, his, his, he was the mayor of Dallas at the time of yes. the assassination, and his brother was what the deputy director of the CIA. He was fired over the Bay of Pigs by Kennedy, so it was always suspicious that the mayor of Dallas was Earl Cavill riding a couple cars by Kennedys. And he did not like Kennedy Molly. His brother was fired. He was deputy chief of the CIA, and he called Kennedy a traitor but resumed his duties in the Pentagon. But we did not know at the time that Earl Cavill, the brother of the mayor of Dallas, was also CIA-connected, and that came out in the files. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like with Trump, I really feel like he loves a good conspiracy theory, but, of course, he's not going to do the reading into it. He's not going to look at it. He's going to be like, Ted Cruz's father was having brunch on the grassy knoll with Lee Harvey Oswald. Can you believe this stuff? Can you believe this? They're having brunch together, and then he shifts, you know. So he, he said wow. – it was amazing when he brought Mike Pence out in uh, 2016. My brother was actually at the convention in Ohio, the RNC. He brought Pence out to announce him as the uh, VP and the running mate. He's up, he's up there on stage in front of Mike Pence talking about Ted Cruz's father and the Kennedy wow. assassination. It's like, dude, is this oh, for real? That's crazy, man. Yeah. Is this for real? <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, we're at an hour 20 just about, and uh, – I think we want to wrap things up, Vince, but I really appreciate you coming on. Where can people uh, follow you? I put a link to your uh, blog spot, but where can people follow you or get your books or best way for them to support you and look at your stuff? Yeah, thanks a lot. Well, the easiest way to do it just be to Google my name, Vince Palomera, P-A-L-A-M-A-R-A, and everything basically comes up on the first page of Google. My Amazon page, about the five books, you can get Kindle and paperback, and then uh, my two major blogs come up there. I appreciate you linking that. And my YouTube channel. I've got hours and hours of Kennedy motorcade footage, a whole bunch of old documentaries and everything in between. So, uh, yeah, that's the best resource there. Yeah. Well, appreciate we it, man. Mike. Thanks a lot. Oh, absolutely. And I appreciate you coming out of retirement like Michael Jordan to do the interview. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to have you on again. Um, yeah, keep it, keep to, it open. Yeah. Absolutely. I need to get your books. And, and next time, Bobby Kennedy's in New Hampshire. Uh, I'd love to hand up one of your books. Uh, you know, Excellent. It's, uh, yeah. That's great stuff. But uh, thank you very much, everybody, for watching another episode of Jackman Radio. We'll see you soon. Take care. Thanks.